Hello folks and welcome to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a North Wales-based true crime show seeking out the usually more obscure and unfamiliar cases, both solved and unsolved ones, from all corners of the UK and Ireland. I'm your host Paul, the creator and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, and once again, now completely illness-free, I hope that you'll be glad to hear, it's fantastic being back with you guys and bringing you another case. Hope that as you hear this, the episode finds all of you good and well. So I'm back with the show now. I'm finally much better. I was proper flawed for a couple of weeks with not the dreaded man flu, but real and actual flu. It's the worst I've felt in years. And it got a bit too much to juggle everything around. I did manage to eventually get the South Wales Slayer arc finished out though, which I was more than happy about. And aside from this episode that you're about to hear today, I've also managed to finish this month's bonus Patreon episode number 22, which will be out shortly also. I've also got a solid run of episodes coming up now as we move into the final third of this series of the show before I have a couple of weeks break and then like a renegade master, I'll be back once again for series five. Whenever I'm on break from the show though, there will still be Patreon episodes coming for supporters, that's always a given. So for anyone interested in supporting the show as one, like my very kind new supporters, Jane Buckle, Umi Amri, Michael Webb, Wendy Krill, Susan Hayden and Tracy Rutherford, who get my untold thanks and appreciation for their support, there's nearly a full series of bonus episodes, the likes of The Murder of Janie Shepherd, The Portsmouth Casanova Murder, and the latest bonus episode, Retribution, which will be out shortly to name but a few, with a new one released monthly. Now if titles like these tantalise you and you think, ooh, wonder what that's about, then supporting the show is very simple. There's an ever-present link in the show notes each week or you can head over to the Patreon site and just look up the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on there. There's a choice of several tiers available. It's very self-explanatory to do and it's very reasonable as well. So, for my returning case then. It was one that I'd added a while back on the ever-expanding list of potential cases for the show, then I promptly forgot about it as others came and went above it, but then I rediscovered it recently when it fell across my lap while I was looking up another case. That's how the genesis of episodes of the show come sometimes, they seem to almost choose themselves as if by accident or some sort of weird higher power or something like that. It's a case that takes place up in the Midlothian area of Scotland. We are long, long leaving Wales behind for a while on the show, as I'm sure that you can appreciate. And it takes place way back in the mid-1980s. It's one of the most brutal and senseless tales that you can ever imagine. The episode this week contains descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find upsetting or disturbing. So as always, discretion is advised whilst listening, guys. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiasters this week we look back at a case I've entitled Soldiers, Snow and Slaughter. Located near the town of Pennycook, now I had to look up how to pronounce this as it's spelt P-E-N-I-C-U-I-K. So I wasn't sure about that, but I did look it up and it's pronounced Pennycook. In the Midlothian area of Scotland, Glencorse Barracks is one of the three barracks alongside Dreghorn and Redford Barracks that make up the city of Edinburgh garrison. 
A former prison when the existing buildings were established, it was for many years a constantly busy working barracks as the Regional Infantry Training Centre for Adult Highland Brigade recruits and has over the years been the home of several regiments of the British Army. Due to close in 2032, Glencorse Barracks is today home to the Royal Highland Fusiliers Regiment of the Army, but back in 1985, the year that this week's tale takes place, it was home to the Royal Scots, the oldest, most senior infantry regiment of the line, and at the time, under the command of Colonel Clive Fairweather. By January 1985, Colonel Fairweather had only been commanding officer at the barracks for a short couple of months, and as a no-nonsense soldier, he was too IC of the SAS teams that had undertaken Operation Nimrod, the codename for the takedown of the Iranian embassy siege in London in 1980. He'd assessed the running of Glencorse thoroughly, and he'd decided to implement sensible, practical changes to security and procedures concerning areas that he deemed in need of review. And one of the major areas that was of pressing concern for Colonel Fairweather was the procedure that was in place for the weekly collection of money that formed the wage packets of each and every soldier at the camp. The procedure was a tried and tested one. Collections would be made at the same time each Thursday from a branch of the Royal Bank of Scotland located amid an arcade of units on John Street in the nearby Midlothian town of Pennycook. Travelling in a canvas-topped army Land Rover, a strictly three-person team of soldiers, an NCO driver, Paymaster Major David Cunningham, and a warrant officer from the Royal Pay Corps, would travel early in the morning to the bank, collect a sum of money, which varied in amount each week, depending upon the number of soldiers on camp at the time who required paying, and then return without deviation or stopping on a strictly specified route back to Glencorse Barracks, which was only a couple of miles away. The entire process took each time only 30 to 40 minutes, and indeed ran like clockwork. Yet this familiar tried and tested method wasn't always adhered to. The payroll Land Rover was known to stop and give lifts back to barracks to service personnel en route, plus such a regular routine could easily be observed and learned over time. And as a Land Rover is hardly an ideal vehicle for transporting valuable goods, which could be sums of money that could be as times as high as £60,000, and indeed it's not ideal for escaping a pursuit or an interception, Colonel Fairweather highlighted the ever-present risk of the payroll run being a target for an armed hold-up. He told the Scottish Daily Record newspaper several years later, I arrived in December 1984 and gave Major Cunningham until the end of January 1985 to do something about it. I said, you're going to get done. The men couldn't arm themselves, so they were just the same as civilians. But I had no idea it was going to be murder. In fact, by mid-January 1985, Major Cunningham had recently retired from the army, but was still attached to the payroll division as a civilian employee. Following consultations with Colonel Fairweather, on the 16th of January 1985, he reported to him that the proposed implemented security measures would be in by the next money collection the following morning. The following morning at 9am, an army Land Rover, Registration number 08GN76 set off from Glencorse Barracks to make the routine payroll run. 
accompanying 56-year-old paymaster retired Major David Cunningham, on driver duty that day was 25-year-old Private John Thompson, a married father of a two-year-old son, Bruce, and a member of the King's Own Scottish Borderers, who'd only been at Glencourse for just 10 days. Making up the third of the three-man payroll team, and himself executing his first payroll duty as another recent transferee in, was 39-year-old Staff Sergeant Terence Hosker. The day was incredibly cold and the area had had the first heavy snow of the year, which the three men chatted about as they drove to the bank for what should have been a routine trip. It was indeed a routine collection. As they parked at the rear of the bank, Staff Sergeant Hosker and Major Cunningham entered through the bank's rear doors and only a few moments later had loaded the sum of £19,000 secured in a durable canvas sack into the Land Rover. A short time later, the vehicle set off and headed up the A701 Edinburgh Road towards Glencourse Barracks. Now it was only a short route and even owing for delays within the bank, the run should have been back at camp by 10am at the very latest. Yet they never arrived. Back at Glencourse, colleagues of the three men became concerned when they didn't return promptly as expected and notified police which prompted an immediate search in and around the Pennycook area. At about the same time, local farmer John Graham of Logan House in Pennycook was on his way to a local garage to drop his car off for a routine service accompanied by his wife Lynn. John was steering his vehicle as Lynn drove the farm's Land Rover and towed the vehicle down the remote track that led from Logan House to a track joining the locally known Flotterstone Road, which leads into the picturesque Pentland Hills and loops around past Glencourse Reservoir. As they headed slowly down this track, John and Lynn discovered an army Land Rover swerved off the track and lodged in a ditch, its lights on and windscreen wipers still running. However, due to the thick covering of snow on the track, the couple didn't stop, wishing to keep the momentum going, save stopping and getting stuck in the snow, and so pressed onwards. But upon their return a short time later, once the car had been delivered, they found the vehicle still there, and this time they did stop to investigate. The couple found the windscreen and passenger window of the vehicle to be shattered and a considerable amount of blood coating the seats and instrument panel. So fearing someone had been seriously hurt, their concern grew and they decided to contact police. Unbeknown to John and his wife, police were already searching for the vehicle, alerted by Colonel Fairweather, who following his highlighted concerns, had expressed suspicion and unease when the payroll vehicle had failed to arrive back at Glencourse. Colonel Fairweather was liaising with police when John Graham reported the vehicle that he and his wife had discovered and travelled with his regimental sergeant major and police officers to the Flotterstone Road. Upon their arrival at the start of the track off the road, however, a passing dog walker flagged them down and alerted them to a distinct, vivid trail of blood that was visible against the white snow. Many years later, Colonel Fairweather told the Daily Record newspaper, The snow brings it all back, bright red blood in the fresh white snow. Following the gruesome trail onwards for some two and a half miles, they soon came to the stricken Land Rover. It was undoubtedly the payroll vehicle, and one look inside told the men that something had gone seriously wrong. 
Not only had it deviated seriously from its route back to barracks, but the inside was awash with blood, the windscreen and passenger window were shattered, and of the three occupants and the £19,000 payroll, there was no sign. But the trail of blood continued further up the track. Following the trail, very near to Logan Lee Reservoir, on the horizon they approached the remote Logan Lee Cottage, which remains today but stands empty, despite it being used for many years by water workers. Its windows are neatly shuttered, and the property is locked and secure, though it does remain a point of interest and reference for tourists and ramblers taking in the magnificence and beauty of the Pentland Hills. But that morning, Thursday the 17th of January 1985, Logan Lee Cottage became a crime scene. As the search party approached the cottage, the disturbing sight of three bodies, all of them soldiers in normal working dress, became visible, lying on or near the steps leading to the cottage garden. The missing payroll team had been found, executed. Each man was later found to have horrific gunshot wounds. The body of Major Cunningham lay at the top of a short flight of stone steps, a devastating wound to the head that had cleaved his skull in half. Staff Sergeant Hosker lay at the foot of the steps on his back, a clearly visible number of gunshot wounds to the chest, shoulder and head, and half crouched over him lay the body of Private Johnson, visible wounds to the back of his head and forearm. Now what a horrific sight that must have been to find, eh? I know a soldier has to expect to see bloodshed in his or her career. Arguably, that's what you sign up for. But only as an act of war, not in an inactive theatre, and certainly not clear and horrific execution style like that. By pure coincidence, that day the Royal Scots Regiment was celebrating their 350th anniversary and as such were hosting a public relations exercise at nearby Ritchie Camp in Kirk Newton and other barracks in Edinburgh's Pentland Hills, to which reporters and the media had been invited to attend. Now it wasn't too well attended as that day's heavy snowfalls had made the roads almost impassable but those members of the press who had managed to get there were treated to a grandois exercise display the type that the armed forces do to perfection. They were to witness displays of live ammunition and anti-tank weaponry a simulated battle including assaults and staged attacks on enemy positions, and the evacuation and treatment of simulated casualties, plenty of squaddies running around with bandages and fake blood everywhere. Simulated horror and bloodshed were very soon to give way to the real thing, however. By that lunchtime, with Endex called and all press enjoying lunch in the officer's mess, the commanding officer was called away to take a telephone call. He re-emerged only a short few moments later, grave-faced and with information he felt bound to pass on to the assembled press. Calling for quiet, he told them, I have just heard some unwelcome news. Three members of an army payroll team from Glencorse Barracks have been found murdered and their bodies dumped in a remote spot two miles from Pennycook. So covering an exercise is that, but being first-hand to hear details of a murder incredibly near to where you're covering the exercise is a different thing altogether, and the mess emptied rapidly as the assembled media scrambled to get to the scene. 
At the Flotterstone Inn, where they were all headed, they were halted by a military roadblock, set up immediately under the command of Colonel Fairweather to assist police upon discovery of the three bodies. Just beyond here, but far enough out of sight for reporters, was the trail of blood leading to the scene of carnage. Police rapidly organised a hasty press conference at the Flotterstone Inn, but couldn't tell the assembled press very much. All they would reveal was that they'd found three bodies a short distance away in the snow, but declined to confirm any identities. There was no sign of the sizeable payroll the men had been collecting, or £19,000 of it, left at the scene, and the rear of the Land Rover was awash with blood and spent cartridge casings from what appeared initially to be a 9mm automatic weapon, which had also been removed from the scene. Almost from the off, several reporters asked the question, was this an IRA attack? And indeed, it was in the midst of the atrocities committed on British soil by the IRA that I'm sure need no further mention. And certainly the thought that this could be the work of the provisional IRA was considered seriously at the earliest stage of the investigation. The efficiency and ruthless violence of the operation all bore hallmarks of an IRA attack. The British Army was a favoured target of their atrocities. Whilst bomb attacks were a much more common feature, it was impossible to rule out a change of tactics. But the evidence pointing to terrorism just didn't stack up. Scotland at the time had been publicly declared safe from attacks by the IRA and as the circumstances were further examined it became clear that robbery, not terrorism, was the motive. But detectives were unclear as to whether they were looking for a lone assailant who was responsible for the grisly incident or an experienced group of murderous professional thieves that was on the loose with neither being an appealing prospect. But they were soon faced with an even less appealing but more likely possibility. Through fast-track ballistic work, the fact that it was three unarmed soldiers who'd been killed in a routine payroll run in a remote location with what was likely an automatic weapon and the testimony of a witness who rapidly came forward, police soon became convinced that the killer they were seeking was the unthinkable, a fellow soldier, and the hunt was already on for the triple murderer. No less than three different witnesses quickly came forward who'd seen the Land Rover in the remote spot where it lay, including one who'd seen it speeding up the track before it had ended up in the ditch. These were John and Lynn Graham, who had of course alerted police to the Land Rover, but there was also the account of George Hobday, a hill walker who was out that morning enjoying the crisp January air and hoping to take some nature photographs. George came forward to report that earlier that morning, he was hiking along the track when he noticed what was unmistakably a trail of blood in the snow. Looking up, he saw the figure of a uniformed soldier jogging in the distance and disappearing around a bend ahead in the track. A short distance onward, George caught up with the figure and drew level with a soldier standing with his back to him near a stream that skirted the path. It seemed to George that the soldier who was dressed in full working dress of green jumper, denims, black boots and a tam o'shanter headdress, was deliberately trying to conceal his features. But as George knew that the area was often used for military manoeuvres, he decided that the soldier was most likely in the midst of an exercise and so opted not to say anything, instead just walking past. 
This, George thought, also likely accounted for the gunshots that he'd heard just a short time before. Although he hadn't seen the soldier's face clearly, he was able to describe the man as being in his mid-twenties to mid-thirties, dark-haired and clean-shaven. A further distance along the track, George came across an abandoned army Land Rover, with its headlights still on and wipers still going, which he examined and at first thought was part of the exercise he believed the soldier was a part of. However, what struck him and made him rethink was the amount of blood that he saw inside and the visible damage to the vehicle. He later described the vehicle as dripping with blood which was visibly still wet. Considering that there may have been an accident, George took photographs of the vehicle with a camera he was carrying and then went and reported what he'd seen to the first people he came across, John Graham and his wife Lynn, who had just reported the same to police. Another witness who came forward with crucial information was William Kenyon, a farm worker who was at the time tending to sheep in one of the fields above the Flotterstone Inn. After seeing the Land Rover speed past in the distance, William thought to himself that the speed it was travelling at over the traverse wintry conditions on the track, it was inevitable that there was going to be an accident. Shortly afterwards, he heard a sequence of gunfire in the distance, a short barrage of shots, followed again by a burst of two shots. Again, not unduly perturbed because the nearby area was extensively used for military exercises, it was only when William made his way down the hill and along the track in the direction the Land Rover had headed did he realise that this was something very, very different from military manoeuvres. William noticed on the ground a distinctive trail of blood that when he followed led to an already established roadblock beyond which lay a scene of pure carnage. The shot slaughtered corpses of Major Cunningham, Staff Sergeant Hosker and Private Thompson outside the abandoned Logan Lee Cottage. Following the information received from these witnesses, Police now firmly believed they were looking for a killer soldier, and by the late afternoon of the murders, the entire military personnel at the camps of Glencore Sparrows and Ritchie Camp had been confined to base, and all were paraded on the parade square in full working battle dress to allow their uniforms to be inspected for any telltale blood staining. Over the remainder of that day, and the following one, all soldiers stationed at both camps were interviewed by a team of Lothian and Borders police, led by Detective Inspector James Watt, and the records of both all movements of personnel, but particularly those concerning the weaponry that was held on site, were scrutinised. The military are very good at accounting for people and stores. Well, usually, I mean, they lose the odd weapon every now and again, and rounds and all sorts, but usually they're on, on top of it. In tandem with this, as I've said, police had by that time also fast-tracked the gathered ballistic data from the scene, and the ballistics was rapidly to prove the first lead in the investigation. Police experts were quickly able to identify that it had been the same weapon used to kill all three men, following the examination of the shells that had been left at the scene of the bodies and in the rear of the Land Rover, and further identified the weapon as a 9mm Stirling submachine gun, the type commonly used by the British Army at Army Ranges. The model in question was capable of firing a full magazine 30 round burst when in automatic mode, but crucially could also be set to fire individual shots, which would account for what William Kenyon had heard that morning. 
But the killer that had fired the fatal shots had not bargained on the fact that not only could the type of gun used be identified, but the exact weapon due to its ballistic fingerprints. Each gun left its own distinguishable tiny marks on every round that it fired, ejection marks on the cases, striking marks on the detonator cap, and scratches and scores that are caused by barrel imperfections or the presence of grit and debris that remains within through poor cleaning. These were present on each round when it was ejected, which experts claimed could not be replicated. Now it used to be one of my biggest hates when I was in the force is that cleaning weapons, yuck, range day was always a right pain in the arse through and through. But the worst bit is cleaning out the shit that builds up in weapons. If anyone's serving or ex-forces who are listening, I'm sure you know where I'm coming from there. What a pain in the arse. So when the nine empty bullet casings that had been recovered from outside Logan Lee Cottage and from the rear of the Land Rover had been examined, commonplace marks made by the aforementioned scratches and the firing pin striking the cartridge were found on each of the casings, analysis concluding that all nine shots had been fired from the same individual weapon. Examine the meticulous log that was kept of each weapon withdrawn from both armories at Ritchie Camp and Glencorse Barracks. There were no weapons found to be unaccounted for, so police could quickly recall all Sterling submachine guns and were able to test fire each, then could subsequently cross-reference the bullets and casings ejected after test firing each weapon against the crucial marks left on the bullets and casings from the crime scene. These tests were fast-tracked, and the results were available by the evening following the murders, Friday 18th of January 1985. By that time, police had checked off and interviewed all of the recruits who'd required access to weaponry that day, including those on sanctioned guard duties, and those that required 9mm weaponry for use on the firing range, until at 5.30pm they came to 31-year-old Corporal Andrew Walker, a 1st Battalion Royal Scots NCO weapons instructor attached at the time to the transport section of the Scottish Infantry Division depot at Ritchie Camp following a recent disciplinary. It transpired that earlier that morning, Corporal Walker had signed out a sterling 9mm submachine gun marked as weapon number one from the Ritchie Camp Armoury. When asked why he'd drawn a weapon and ammunition, Walker claimed that he'd signed it out with the intention of using it to give individual weapon training to another Royal Scots NCO, Corporal Gordon Aitchison, but claimed that having done so, he changed his mind about the training and had left the weapon in its case in a depot office wrapped in his own combat jacket. Although Walker had access to a gun of the type used in the murders and had signed one out that very morning, he was not considered an immediate suspect at the time. As a weapons instructor, his explanation for having one was plausible. But when looked at further, Walker's story soon began to raise questions. Corporal Aitchison, the soldier who he'd named for the prospective training, was immediately interviewed but knew nothing of this individual training arranged by Walker for that day, despite having seen and spoken to him first thing that morning. He admitted that he was about to undertake an arms course and so had asked Walker on a previous occasion for some weapons mentoring beforehand, but nothing had been mentioned since or agreed. Furthermore, the office that Walker claimed he'd left the weapon in had that morning been searched during part of the hunt for a missing dictaphone. 
Now the dictaphone wasn't found in the office during the search, but neither was a 9mm Sterling submachine gun, which you imagine would have been pretty prominent and would have been found, wouldn't it? Even more damning to Walker's story was the Royal Military Police's investigation and scrutiny of the Ritchie Camp Armoury Log. The duty armourer on the day of the murders, Private Kenneth Pyrie, was also traced and interviewed. He distinctly remembered Corporal Walker arriving at the armoury early that morning between 8.15 and 8.30am, requesting a rifle, a sterling submachine gun and ammunition for both. He required the weapons in a hurry, he'd claimed, because he needed to give weapons instruction that morning to another corporal and the storeman in Walker's own B Company armoury was absent that day. Private Pyrie was unable to issue Walker a rifle on account of the exercise that was happening the same day, but he did have a Sterling submachine gun available. Walker was duly issued the weapon by the duty armourer, who a short time later witnessed Walker driving out of the camp in a yellow Fiat Mirafiori. At 2pm that afternoon, Walker was back to return the ammunition and weapon, which it was noted had been cleaned and overly oiled, and then asked the storeman for the weapon issue sheet back, claiming that the storeman owed him a favour. Although this was strictly against regulation, Private Pyrie was unwilling to get into a protracted argument with a senior rank to him, and reasoning that the weapon had been returned and the weapons tallied up with his inventory, gave Walker the issue sheet that he'd signed. However, Private Pyrie had subsequently told his senior NCO about Walker's request and had received a bollocking for his troubles for doing so. So at 9.15pm that evening, Walker was questioned again and was now asked where he was at the time of the shootings. Walker claimed that he was off duty at the time, saying that he'd been home and had then gone out jogging. Asked about the yellow Fiat, Walker claimed that it belonged to a fellow soldier, Private Gordon Fleming, and that he'd borrowed it from him to drive to his married quarter in Kirk Newton's Cames Avenue to retrieve some kit that he needed. But this story again didn't stand up, because when police discovered and examined the yellow Fiat, which was empty, bar a single empty coat hanger hanging from the rear passenger roof handle, Private Fleming had remembered the odometer reading when he'd loaned Walker the vehicle, he sounds a barrel of laughs, doesn't he? And they were found to be some 60 miles that Walker had travelled in it that day, a lot further than the trip to Walker's married quarter and back to barracks would have been. So when challenged again about this, Walker changed his story. He now claimed that he hadn't been out jogging at all or home to fetch his kit, but rather that his former mistress, 26-year-old Mrs Patricia Stewart, had telephoned the camp, leaving a message that she wanted to meet him at her home in Edinburgh. Walker claimed that he'd been having sex with Patricia on a regular basis since June 1983 and had said nothing because his wife believed the affair was over and he didn't want her to find out, plus the fact that extramarital affairs are seriously frowned upon in the armed forces. Walker claimed that he drove to Patricia's home in Edinburgh, knocked at her door but got no response. This story was also checked out, with police immediately visiting the house Walker claimed to have gone to, only to find it boarded up, having been like that since a fire some months before, in September 1984. Patricia Stewart was immediately traced to a new address in Stockport in Cheshire and spoken to, where she told police that although she admitted the affair with Walker, she hadn't seen or spoken to him for almost a year by that point after their affair had ended in October 1983. 
So at 10.30pm, because police had worked fast and flat out here, when Walker was questioned yet again following this development, he was now asked if he'd noticed anything unusual about the address he claimed to have visited. When Walker replied in the negative, Detective Inspector James Watt told him, Funny that, Andrew, because we've been to the house and it's boarded up. Walker responded by claiming that he must have gone to the wrong house then, and he couldn't answer when challenged as to how this could be if he'd been going there regularly for sex. He couldn't answer either when he was challenged that he was lying because Patricia hadn't lived there for five months, and he equally couldn't answer when police put it to him that she claimed she hadn't seen him for more than a year. So Walker was already looking dodgier than a £6 note, but it was a call in the early hours of Saturday the 19th of January that was to finally seal it for police. A call came through to Detective Inspector Watt from the Lothian and Borders Police Ballistics Department that confirmed beyond all doubt that the gun Walker had had in his possession on the day of the murders, Sterling Submachine Gun No. 1, was the weapon that had fired the nine rounds that had taken the lives of the three-man payroll team. Armed with all of this evidence, Walker was immediately cautioned by police, to which he made no reply, and was then taken to Dalkeith Police Station, where he was charged with the murders of Major David Cunningham, Private John Thompson, and Staff Sergeant Terence Hosker, to which he again made no reply. Following an appearance before sheriffs that Saturday morning, Andrew Walker was remanded in custody awaiting trial. With Walker in custody then, the three men who he was accused of executing, Major Cunningham, Staff Sergeant Hosker and Private Thompson, were at a later date all buried with full military honours and splendour. Now I don't know if anybody listening has ever attended a military funeral, but they're always highly respectful and ceremonious, they're very memorable and they're very moving. Following their funerals, a memoriam plaque was erected at Glencorse Barracks to remember the three fallen soldiers but little thought was given to the man accused of killing them. On remand awaiting trial for three murders was a far cry from the promising non-commissioned officer that had joined the Royal Scots Regiment 13 years before. After being made redundant from an engineering apprenticeship, Walker signed up to the army for a nine-year tour at age 18 in 1972, hoping to channel some of the steely aggression that had seen him become a semi-finalist at National Amateur Boxing, representing his boyhood Edinburgh club Sparta into a military career. And indeed, for several years he was considered one of the army's shining examples. He excelled in training and he served overseas in Cyprus and Denmark as well as completing four tours in Ulster at the height of the Troubles where his expertise as a sniper and assault pioneer had gained him promotion to the rank of corporal by 1980. By that time Walker was married having met his wife Mary in 1975 and married her after just three months and had become a father for the first time the couple welcoming a son, John, into the world in 1978. This promotion to corporal prompted Walker to sign on for another 18 years of army life, effectively making him a career soldier. By 1983, now a father of two following the birth of the couple's daughter Cheryl in 1981, Walker was looking like promotion was on the cards yet again for him when he was mentioned in dispatches following a tour in South Armagh for dedicated intelligence gathering together with determination and hard work carrying out dangerous patrols as a section leader. 
By this time he was a weapons instructor and one of the army's elite NCOs and his career should have blossomed. However, following this, everything began to go downhill. Never one of the most liked people in his battalion due to his arrogant nature and reputation for being quick with his fists, when Walker was posted to Glencorse Barracks in March 1983, he moved into married quarters in nearby Kirklothian with his wife and two children. Yet as happened so often in the forces, in June 1983, Walker became bored with his lot and began cheating on his wife. He quickly acquired himself a mistress who lived in nearby Edinburgh, 26-year-old Patricia Stewart, and also began creating a fantasy life for himself. He'd come out with tall tales to his mistress, trainees and fellow soldiers, such as him having met President Mitterrand whilst on a visit to France, how he'd single-handedly wiped out a nest of terrorists in Northern Ireland, many other stories of his daring SAS-type operations, jazzed-up exploits of his work with British intelligence, he'd been to Old Zealand, he'd seen a DFS sale finish. Basically, if you'd been to the moon, he'd been there on his mountain bike, that kind of thing. Such were the whoppers that he came out with that his colleagues began to dub him Billy Liar. But what was so remarkable about this was Walker had already seen and established himself in action, enough to gain promotion and mentions in dispatches. So it wasn't like he needed to, it just wasn't enough for his ego and he felt the need to embellish his exploits further. As we've said in previous episodes of the show, I'm sure that we all know someone who's like this, don't we? I'll never understand why they are, but I'm sure we do all know. So although Walker's affair with Patricia had ended in October 1983 when Mary found out about it, the lies and fantasies continued. And whilst living in this largely fantasy world, the materialistic Walker was also mounting up a pile of debt that fast landed him in trouble, living well beyond the means of his £8,000 a year salary to create some sort of status for himself through spending. By late 1984, he owed debts totalling more than half of this annual salary, of which £1,694 was in missed hire purchase payments on an Alfa Romeo car, at the time in the garage, awaiting £1,407 worth of repairs. He also owed £902 to his access credit card account, and another £260 to a fellow Royal Scots soldier, Corporal Robert Walker, a debt that had been outstanding since 1982. And this is on top of providing for a wife and two small children. Yet despite all of this, on the surface Walker didn't seem unduly bothered, and showed no inclination to curb his spending and sort out his finances. But even the absolute coolest of customers can't be in such debt and it not have an effect. And although he was to later claim that his debts left him unruffled, they began to impact upon his duties. In the summer of 1984, he was admonished for failing to report for duty. Shortly afterwards, in November 1984, he was fined £60 for failing to return from leave on time and for lying about the reason for it to his commanding officer. Then a month later, the same thing happened, and this time Walker asked a fellow soldier to cover up for him. The ruse was discovered, however, and disciplined by his new commanding officer, Colonel Clive Fairweather, Walker was posted back to battalion headquarters at Camp Ritchie in Kirk Newton, attached to the transport section on a three-month warning. His military record at this time read that Walker was quite unreliable and was losing the confidence of comrades and superiors. 
Colonel Fairweather, when many years later was interviewed by the Scottish Daily Record newspaper, recalled, In a way, I accelerated the course of events because I sacked him. On the Friday, I found him guilty of lying, put him on a three-month warning, posted him back to Kirk Newton, and the last thing I said to him was, I can see you in a blue suit, son, eating porridge. Come and pick my lottery numbers, Clive. By this point, however, Walker had already begun to make desperate plans to get himself out of debt, and as the Royal Scots were due to leave Scotland to begin a tour of duty in West Germany at the end of January 1985, it was a desperate plan that was forced into action, which we shall hear about shortly. Walker's trial for the murders of Major Cunningham, Staff Sergeant Hosker and Private Thompson, the theft of the £19,000 camp payroll, a burglary charge of Jock's Bar Naffy at Glencourse on October 14th, 1984, furthered by a charge of forcing a gaming machine to steal money, began at the High Court in Edinburgh at the beginning of May 1985, where he pleaded not guilty and offered a defence of alibi. Over a two and a half week trial, a large procession of witnesses, 125 in total, filed into the witness box to present a compelling case against Walker, beginning with the testimony of Constable Roderick MacDonald, a police ballistics expert who gave evidence about ballistics and marks matching the firing pin of the SMG Walker had signed out on the morning of the murders to not only bullet cases removed from the Land Rover and crime scene, but an intact bullet that had been removed from the shoulder of Staff Sergeant Hosker. Because Hosker had been shot several times, the first bullets had fragmented beyond recovery, along with any hope of identification. But one bullet had been retained in his shoulder, and the grooves and striations on this bullet were able to be matched under a microscope to bullets that were test-fired from the Sterling submachine gun that had been issued to Walker the same day, proving that beyond any doubt, it was the murder weapon. Marks on the casings were also found to match those test-fired by police from the same weapon. And the motive for such horror? The court then heard from a succession of witnesses who all testified as to Walker's crippling debts and his reputation as a cadger and sponger who would forever be on the borrow from fellow soldiers perpetually skint. Corporal Robert Simpson told how this accumulation of debt brought on by Walker's materialistic tastes had begun as far back as 1982 when he'd loaned Walker the sum of £310 and within three years had had just £50 of it repaid. This had worsened as time went on as highlighted by Walker's former mistress Patricia Stewart, the woman he claimed he'd gone to see on the morning of the murders. Giving evidence at his trial, she told how during their four-month affair, she'd shared in Walker's extravagant lifestyle. He'd lived off credit cards, he'd wined and dined her with expensive meals out, lucrative gifts and more flowers than Elton John takes on tour with him, which must be a bloody hell of a lot, I can imagine. Where if he goes to the bog, Elton John has to have a bouquet of flowers with him. And then she got a telephone call from Walker's devastated wife, Mary, who had discovered that he was having an affair. Patricia was that shocked that she ended the affair immediately and travelled to meet with Walker's wife Mary to apologise. It highlighted just how skilled the liar Walker was as Patricia told the court, I was devastated, believe me, I was blameless. He covered his tracks so well and I was glad to be shot of him because of his lies and deception. 
I was completely hoodwinked. He told me he'd left his wife and had I known they were still together, I would never have considered going out with him. But even though the affair had been discovered and was ended, throughout the following year, Walker remained sinking further and further into debt. His former commanding officer, Major Bruce Dunlop, told the court that in late 1984, he himself was contacted by a finance company who claimed that Walker owed them the sum of £1,700 in unpaid finance. Glencore's pay clerk, Winifred Smith, testified that in both November and December of the same year, Walker had been and asked for advances in his pay, and a manager at the Midland Bank Access Credit Branch told the court that by the end of 1984, Walker owed more than £900 to his credit card account. It was by this time, the court alleged, that Walker had begun planning a way out of his financial dire straits, by targeting the weekly Glencorse payroll run, which he knew sometimes carried sums that could be up to the amount of £50,000, and that meant a quick and easy fix to his problems. He began staking out and learning the route, and testing the security of it as far back as November 1984, learning that it would always be carried out by a three-man team, Major Cunningham, a driver, and an additional guard, if you like. The crew would be under strict orders, no stopping, no passengers by the designated three, and no deviation from the set route to the bank and back to barracks. The only time they could deviate from this route was under strict police orders, in which case they still couldn't leave the vehicle, but would instead follow police to the nearest station and remain there. Unfortunately, not all of these regulations were as strictly adhered to as required, as was testified at Walker's trial by two former designated payroll drivers, Lance Corporal Douglas Ballantyne and Private Frederick Donnelly, who told the court that on the occasions of November the 15th and December the 6th, 1984 respectively, the amiable Major Cunningham had twice allowed the vehicle to give a lift to a soldier who was either hitching in uniform as it was driving back to Glencourse or had asked for a lift to the bank from Glencourse to use the cash point at the bank. Each time, the soldier had been Corporal Andrew Walker. He didn't even have an account at the bank. These breaches of the lax security gave Walker the confidence to follow through with a plan to snatch the payroll, but the problem was, by using his uniform to gain a ride and to not arouse suspicion, he would also make himself identifiable to his colleagues. But Walker may not have realised, however, that for the type of crime he intended to commit, it wouldn't just be handled by the redcaps of the Royal Military Police. Armed robbery and triple murder tends to get the civilian police involved and triple murder was always going to be the endgame, because his heist would be fruitless, even if successful, if he would be easily recognisable as a fellow soldier of the same regiment. The court then heard the believed series of events of the fateful day of Thursday the 17th of January 1985, the day Walker had chosen for the terrible plan that he had in mind. After having signed out a sterling SMG from the Ritchie Camp Armoury early that morning and wrapping it as a package, Walker borrowed a yellow Fiat Mia Friori from fellow soldier Private Gordon Fleming, ostensibly for the use of fetching kit from his married quarter. In reality, Walker drove the vehicle into Pennycook, where he parked it some streets away and made his way on foot towards John Street, holding a bulky wrapped package under his arm. Spotting the distinct army Land Rover parked at the rear of the bank, 
Walker approached the vehicle, recognising the driver sat behind the wheel as a newly transferred in member of the King's own Scottish borderers, Private John Thompson. Walker asked Thompson if it was alright for him to gain a lift back to barracks with a convoy, which was fine with Thompson, but he told Walker that he need confirm it with a headshed, meaning the two senior figures who were at the time in the bank handling the withdrawal of the payroll. Recently retired Major David Cunningham and Staff Sergeant Terence Hosker, a newly transferred member of the Royal Army Pay Corps. When the two men came out of the bank, Walker and Thompson stopped their chatting and Walker drew himself up to pay proper respects to the officers. Cunningham briefly acknowledged the respect before authorising Walker to get a lift back with the convoy. Again, it wasn't an uncommon occurrence, it was something that Major Cunningham had twice before allowed Walker over the previous few months. Walker then even helped load the weekly payroll into the back of the vehicle, the sizeable sum of £19,000, packed into a tough canvas sack. So with that done, as the four men got into the Land Rover and headed off back along John Street towards the barracks, Walker sat in the back seat, swiftly unwrapped the package that he had cradled towards him to reveal a 9mm Sterling submachine gun. With the speed and skills that he'd gleaned over time as a weapons instructor, in an instant Walker had fitted a full magazine of 9mm ammunition that he'd stolen some months previously to the weapon, had cocked it and was now pointing it at the three other occupants of the vehicle. With a commanding menacing air, he told the three men, Now you will all do as I say. What was happening was probably unbelievable to the other three men, who all knew that the standard instruction issued for any such emergency that arose an armed hold-up was for, I quote, the money to be handed over with no attempt made to resist. Which is standard. I've got a friend who works on security vans up in Glasgow who's been held up by armed raiders twice, and he says that they are told exactly the same thing. But with that, you're expecting to deal with heavy-duty villains then, aren't you? You don't expect it from a colleague or a member of your own regiment, someone that you know, especially with the unique kind of working bond that you develop with, it, with other soldiers within your regiment, your squadron, your flight, whatever. It just isn't something you expect to happen. The exact scenario that followed was and has never been determined exactly, but based upon the evidence that was discovered, what likely happened was as follows. Now in command of the vehicle, Walker ordered Private Thompson to turn left off John Street onto Pennycook's Morriswood Road and drive up here onto the A702 to head towards the Flutterstone Road out on the Pentland Hills to then take a detour off up a track towards remote Loganley Cottage. But whilst the vehicle was travelling along Morriswood Road, Staff Sergeant Hosker made a desperate attempt to wrestle the weapon away from Walker. He failed and received two bullets to the stomach and chest for his troubles. This was supported by the later testimony of witnesses who claimed that they'd heard the sound of muffled gunfire here and saw the Land Rover driving erratically towards the A702. It's not sure entirely as to whether Major Cunningham was also shot dead at this point or further onwards just past the Flutterstone Inn, but what is clear is that at some point before the vehicle stopped by Logan Lee Cottage, leaning slightly forward, Walker placed the barrel of the weapon to just behind Major Cunningham's right ear and pulled the trigger. 
The force of the shot near cleaved the Major's skull in two, killing him instantly and causing such bloodshed that a clear visible trail of blood now began to seep out of the vehicle. So with Hosker now badly injured and close to death, Thompson driving absolutely what must have been petrified and the Major dead in the passenger seat, Walker ordered Thompson to drive on for another two miles or so up the track past the Flutterstone Inn until they arrived at Logan Lee Cottage where he ordered the Land Rover to stop. Now can you imagine just how scared Private Thompson, 26 year old married father of two, must have been at that point? Doesn't even bear thinking about does it? At gunpoint, Walker now ordered him to remove the bodies of Major Cunningham and Staff Sergeant Hosker from the blood-soaked Land Rover and to leave them at the steps of the cottage garden, which Thompson was forced to comply with. When this was done, Walker forced the terrified man to kneel in a stress position in the deep snow, ankles crossed and head resting upon his forearms. The terrified man then heard a burst of gunfire, realising that Walker had emptied a number more bullets into the body of Staff Sergeant Hosker, who already fatally injured, had twitched in a near-death spasm. That was sadly the last thing that Private Thompson was to ever hear, for Walker then callously shot him through the forearm and the back of the head, executing him. Leaving this horrific scene a carnage behind him, Walker then drove off back down towards the Flutterstone Inn in the Land Rover. Now whether it was down to that he was an incompetent driver, the adrenaline rushing through him from the carnage he'd just committed, the atrocious weather conditions or a combination of all of these, Walker skidded the vehicle off the track only about half a mile away from the bodies and after hitting a wall, careered it into a ditch. Getting out to inspect, Walker cursed when he realised there was no way he could shift the vehicle from its current position, so he set off on foot. Walker had already decided on a hiding place to stash the majority of the money nearby to the scene for collection later, so after filling his pockets with a relatively small amount of the haul, just over £100, Walker stashed the remainder in this secret cache and then set off on foot back towards Pennycook. At some point on this journey, possibly only shortly after stashing the money, George Hobday caught up with Walker, who hid his face as best he could as George walked past. That was probably the luckiest moment of George's life without him realising. An already triple killer had just decided to spare him. Returning to where he'd parked the Fiat, here Walker changed into a blue tracksuit that he'd brought with him and then proceeded to drive into Edinburgh, planning to head to the home of his former mistress to build himself an alibi for that morning. It could be established that he'd headed here because Walker inadvertently ensured that he stayed in the mind of the attendant at a petrol station in Liberton as he made quite a scene when he filled up there and was a penny short of the £5.01 petrol total that he filled up with. After spending an hour in Edinburgh, he then cleaned and returned the gun back to the armoury, excessively oiling it. Returning home that afternoon, Walker gave £100 of the payroll money to his wife, giving her the far-fetched explanation that he'd found a bag of money hidden beneath a dry stone wall whilst he was out jogging that morning, and then unperturbed, went ahead and ordered an £8,000 Austin Maestro left-hand drive vehicle with all the extras equipped for him to be able to drive over in Germany, where the Royal Scots were headed for the following week. 
it was this posting that had forced Walker's hand. That week's payroll collection was his last chance to solve his financial problems. Yet he was so confident in his planning and that he would get away cleanly with his crime and the £19,000 that the day he'd ordered the Austin Maestro just hours after he'd cold-bloodedly executed three fellow soldiers, he'd waived the special low-interest terms reserved for serving soldiers that was offered by the dealership, telling the supplier confidently that he would pay for the vehicle in cash upon delivery in a few days. He'd even seemingly gloated about his crime as when he and his wife Mary were watching television that evening and a news report about the brutal murders came on the screen, Walker told her, I did that, telling her that the money he'd given her earlier was part of that haul and that he'd found the perfect hiding place for the rest of the money. However, he backtracked and pretended that he was just joking immediately when he saw the immediate shock, horror and distress on his wife's face. Perhaps she knew him too well or had heard something in the way he said it that suggested instantly to her that he was telling the truth. Whatever it was, she was still so distressed that four months later she was excused from giving evidence at the trial of her husband after breaking down in tears in the witness box. The court would never know whether her testimony would have supported the court's view of Walker being a liar and a killer or would have defended the father of her children to the hilt. There were another succession of witnesses, all serving soldiers, who testified as to having seen Walker leaving the camp that day, how he was absent that morning from a duty of manning a radio link that he was rostered to do, and how he always seemed to be short of money, catching a fiver here and a tenner there, means, motive and opportunity. And yet, quite unbelievably, it seemed that Andrew Walker truly believed that he could lie his way out of trouble and suspicion. I mean... Can you get your head around that based upon what we've heard? Instead of his perfect crime and a nest egg hidden away waiting for him to collect, he was arrested and charged with three murders less than two days after his crime, the evidence against him overwhelming. Unreal, eh? And he was still trying to lie his way out of trouble even whilst he was on remand. The Crown introduced as a prosecution witness an 18-year-old youth named William Loden, who'd been in custody with Walker whilst he was awaiting trial and who had a quite remarkable story to tell the court. Walker, he claimed, had assaulted him and had threatened to shoot both the youth and his girlfriend through the head if he didn't smuggle a letter out of the jail for him. Loden was in such fear of the man, after hearing what he was accused of, that he really believed Walker would find and kill him himself or engineer his death if he didn't comply. He also claimed that Walker had confessed in detail the murders of the three men to him. On February 15th, Walker delivered the letter to Loden for him to take out and deliver upon his release on the 1st of March. But on the 1st of March, the letter was found on Loden by prison officers. Signed by Joe O'Neill, it was addressed to Walker's brother and read, I want you to make a few phone calls for me to different places which I hope will get me released from prison. I'm not guilty, but the only way I'm going to get out of this is by doing this. They wanted someone for this murder, and I just happened to fit the bill. The letter went on to instruct Walker's brother to contact the media with a message that the killings were done by, I quote, an active service unit of the Scottish cell of the provisional IRA, giving specific IRA code words that British intelligence had gleaned, and ended by saying, 
If you make the calls, it will put doubts in everybody's minds and force the Crown to release me from jail. Pretty damned there then, eh? Yet Walker refused to give up his protestations of innocence. When he took the stand on day 10 of his trial, he stood impassive in the dock in a grey shirt, suit and tie, and steadfast denied everything put to him based on the presented evidence, sticking to the story that he'd given police four months before. He claimed he could not have shot three people dead in cold blood because it was simply something he couldn't do, and he couldn't operate an SMG anyway due to an injury to the optic nerve of his right eye. He couldn't have been the soldier seen running away by George Hobday due to a knee injury that he was carrying, he claimed, and he stuck to professing his belief that it must have been a terrorist organisation responsible, whereas he'd simply been framed by police. Walker admitted writing the letter from his prison cell on remand because he firmly believed that it must have been the IRA that were responsible for such an atrocity, but everything else presented to the court he denied or tried to explain away. He didn't consider his financial position, the likely motive for the murder, desperate at all. Everyone who'd seen him on the day of the murders was either mistaken or were simply lying. The £100 that he'd given his distraught wife on the afternoon of the murders was simply an advanced sum of his wages. He even explained away him cleaning the SMG that he'd signed out but hadn't used by claiming that the weapon had been dirty and in poor working order when it had been issued to him that morning. Billy Liar was an absolutely dreadful liar indeed. On Friday 17th of May 1985, a jury of nine women and six men took just 90 minutes to find Corporal Andrew Walker unanimously guilty of all the charges he faced. And when the verdict was announced, Walker stood in the dock staring at the jury in disbelief, shaking his head. Sentencing him to three counts of life imprisonment, Judge Lord Grieve told Walker, you have been found guilty of what can only be described as brutal, callous and calculated murders which must bring revulsion to the hearts of all decent thinking people. You've shown yourself to be wholly unworthy to be a member of a famous and distinguished regiment. Your conduct has been quite inexcusable. He further told Walker that he would not be considered for release before having served a minimum term of 30 years imprisonment, a sentence which at the time equalled the longest specified sentence ever passed for murder in Scotland. There were overwhelming shouts of approval from the public gallery following this, and as Walker was being led from the dock to begin his life sentence, he angrily shook his arm from the prison officer escorting him and shook it at the jury as he passed by. In a sentencing report issued just after Walker was convicted, Lord Grieve is quoted as follows. This was a calculated crime. The accused, if he was to achieve his purpose, had to kill. I'm quite satisfied on the evidence that the crime was carefully planned and I'm also quite sure that the substance of the evidence given by the accused was a tissue of lies. A person who could bring himself to do what he did is not fit to live in a society which still regards itself as civilised. Where the full effect is given to my recommendation will no doubt depend upon how the accused conducts himself in prison. Sounds about right for a monster such as Walker, that doesn't it? But even after Walker was imprisoned, there still remained one unanswered question. What had happened to the remainder of the £19,000 that the three men had died so horrifically for? 
The only amount of the payroll ever recovered was the £100 Walker gave to his wife that afternoon, and Walker, who from his cell continued to deny any knowledge or involvement in the crime, despite the overwhelming evidence, was saying nothing. It was at first considered that he may have deposited the money in a bank or building society during his trip to Edinburgh that morning, but following the high-profile case, no institution ever came forward to admit receiving such a large deposit of cash that day. An accomplice was considered, but ultimately ruled out, so it's long been believed that Walker had hidden the rest of the money, £18,500 in £10 notes and £400 in £5 notes, somewhere up in the Pentland Hills, perhaps in a burrow or a dry stone dyke near to the murder scene fully intending to return at a later safer date to collect the remainder. The area was thoroughly searched, waterways were scoured and dredged, but that money has never been discovered to this day, or reported anyway. It may of course have been found long ago, and just never reported, some finder coming into a fortune, and knowing where the money had likely come from, opted not to say anything, choosing riches over honesty. But of course, it may still remain hidden somewhere, though you'd have to think, due to the passage of time and the elements, if it is, then it will also most likely have long since rotted away by now. Either way, for many years the Pentland Hills were the scene of treasure seekers, all looking for the missing money from the payroll murders. Walker appealed his conviction just a few months following his imprisonment, still claiming it was the IRA who were responsible, but his conviction was unanimously upheld and his appeal was denied. He reportedly revelled in his notoriety in prison, and only a year after his conviction was given a further seven-year sentence for being one of the ringleaders of a destructive riot at Scotland's Peterhead prison. However, in 2002 he did manage to get his sentence reduced after appeal judges ruled that the original 30-year tariff was excessive and his sentence was set to 27 years, meaning Walker could have been freed by 2012. He was never to serve the full term of his imprisonment though. In 2009, Walker suffered a debilitating stroke in his cell at Schott's prison which left him severely incapacitated with little positive prognosis. He was transferred from Schott's prison to Wishaw General Hospital in North Lanarkshire, where he was kept under round-the-clock supervision until three years later he was released from Schott's prison on compassionate grounds to a Lanarkshire nursing home, which has remained unnamed. Although following the stroke he was initially deemed to have just two or three years left to live, 65-year-old Andrew Walker remains alive in a nursing home to this day. Today, he's thought to be the longest surviving prisoner released on those terms. But Walker's release, if you like, has caused controversy and fury amongst the surviving families of his victims, who can never forget that his actions, for just £100 if you think about it, left three families devastated and four children fatherless. The still grieving wife of Private John Thompson, Susan, said earlier this year that news that Walker is still alive 10 years after a stroke is proof that former Justice Secretary Kenny McCaskill made the wrong decision in releasing him to a Lanarkshire care home in 2012. Susan was quoted as saying, Each year Walker lives on after his release from prison, I get angrier. I always believed it was a mistake to release him and this is proof that they were wrong. 
the fact he's still alive makes a mockery of their reasons for releasing him in the first place. I was told it was to save money that it wasn't financially viable to continue to keep him in a prison because they didn't have the facilities to give him the care that he needed. How much has it cost the taxpayer now to keep this killer in a care home? Walker showed no compassion to the men he killed and he should have been given none. Now the Scottish government have declined to comment upon this, saying only that prisoners are only released under specific criteria such as terminal illness, being severely incapacitated or where imprisonment would shorten life expectancy. Scottish Conservative Justice spokesman Liam Kerr said compassionate leave should be reserved for prisoners who are staring death in the face. He added, Given this evil individual is still alive after all these years, it was quite clearly a terrible error of judgement. And even so, many years later, the spectre of Walker's evil still has repercussions for the surviving families of his victims, specifically Susan Thompson and his son Bruce. In 2019, she told the Scottish Daily Record how two years before, she was at a dance when a total stranger sat down beside her. She recalled, He was annoying and I wanted him to go away. But while he talked, he said he'd been in the army and had left because his close friend was killed years before. I said, That's a coincidence. My husband was in the army and he was killed in 1985. And he replied, Yeah, Napper, that was my pal. Napper was Johnny's nickname. He seemed totally real at last connection to our past. He even told how devastated he was as he was one of the soldiers tasked with hosing the blood out of the Land Rover that day. After talking to the guy for hours, Susan let the stranger, Robert Anderson, into her life. She went on, he regaled me with tales about him and Johnny serving in the King's own Scottish borderers and I started thinking maybe Bruce would like to meet him. Bruce has been badly affected by Johnny's death and I thought knowing more about his dad would bring him out of his shell. Anderson told us he'd take us to Glencourse to see the plaque for Johnny and the other victims, which we've never seen. Over time, Anderson became a regular visitor to Susan's home in Galashiels and it wasn't long before she started helping him out with money she paid his £297 car insurance, loaned him another £200 and gave him curtains, furniture, even some of John's military mementos. But as time went on, Anderson's strange behaviour began to make her feel suspicious and he even allegedly stole from her and attacked her. In October 2017, Susan returned to her unlocked house one evening to find Anderson drunk and asleep in her bed which is pretty necky really as there are no reports that they were in a physical relationship of any kind. Then days later, she claims he bit her on the neck when she asked him to repay money that he'd borrowed from her. She said, He lunged at me and sank his teeth in and by that time I didn't want him in my house again. Shortly after this, Susan, who runs a news agents in Galashiels, suspected Anderson stole £1,700 in cash from her living room. She recounted, I saw footprints in my kitchen and asked if he'd been in my house. He said he'd come in because he was worried about my dog. Then I found this money was missing. It couldn't have been taken by anyone else. I had to sell my car because I was skint and struggling to keep my shop going. It was shortly afterwards that Anderson made his big mistake though. 
Anderson gave Bruce a medal that he claimed the army had given him and asked him to wear it in his father's memory on Remembrance Day when both attended the parade. But then in a friend's house, Susan happened to see an identical medal that the friend said had not come from the army, but from the Freemasons. Now smelling bullshit and determined to find out more about Anderson, she searched through the King's Own Scottish Borderers Facebook page and finally managed to speak to retired Company Sergeant Major Bill Heaney of the Regimental Association. Now while serving, Bill had known both John and Anderson and he knew that they never could have known each other, explaining why to Susan. He told the Daily Record, Anderson didn't join up to the Kings until after the murders. He has the gift of the gab, but he's a liar through and through. John was a good guy, well-liked, and to target the widow of one of our own is evil. Devastated after being so hoodwinked, Susan finally confronted Robert Anderson in January 2019 about his deception. She told him, You didn't know Johnny, did you? He denied it at first, she says, but in the end he admitted he'd lied because he wanted me to like him. Then he ran out the door. I've never seen him since. He made a fool out of everybody and Bruce was devastated. I felt really stupid at first, but now I just feel angry. It's one thing to lie about being great pals with Johnny, but making up horrific details about hosing blood out of the Land Rover was disgusting. And it is disgusting indeed, that, isn't it? What an absolutely despicable thing to do. Callous parasite to target someone still so devastated by the loss of her husband that she told in one interview how she can't even bring herself to go out in the snow because it's such a reminder. Well, that's just wicked beyond belief, isn't it? Worming your way into the vulnerable like that. An absolute disgrace to the armed forces is Anderson, who should have any military records stripped bare and completely deleted for such parasitic actions. It continues to be painful even so many years later for Susan and Bruce and undoubtedly the families of Major Cunningham and Staff Sergeant Hosker. I mean, how would you ever really come to terms with such a senseless, violent loss? But please never forget that aside from the three families of Walker's victims, who've all had to carry on after his imprisonment, facing the devastating loss of fathers and husbands, sons or brothers, please remember Walker's own family as well. They're easily overlooked in any account of the tale, and that was also a young family that was faced with the loss of a male figure, but also whilst having to deal with the guilt of association with Walker. Perhaps they more than anyone carry the memory and the mental burden of his crimes, but no one who was involved will, of course, ever forget. Now retired Lothian and Borders Assistant Chief Constable Hugh Watson was one of the senior officers involved in the case, and he told the Daily Record in 2017, It was one of the worst murders I have ever attended. The amount of money involved is ridiculous when you look at the loss of life he was responsible for. It defies belief. It did then, and it still does. But I think it best summed up by the following statement from Colonel Clive Fairweather, Walker's former CO and one of the first on the scene that day. He told the Daily Record in a recent interview concerning the crimes, Hardly a day passes that I don't think of what one individual's greed did to the families of two officers and a soldier.
Like most cases that we feature here on the show, crimes involving someone's life being taken are awful, but Walker's actions truly are some of the most horrific and senseless that I've ever recounted on the show, aren't they? Police involved with the case have long believed that Walker's experiences in his tours of Ulster made him indifferent and cold enough to take three lives without batting an eyelid. So much bloodshed and horror and devastation for a sum of money that Walker was to never spend a single penny of. I believe such a crime, the planning beforehand, the execution of it and the lies and attempts to get away with it afterwards completely warranted his 30 year sentence, completely. The ripples from his crime not only destroyed several families, but they affected police officers who were still reluctant to discuss the case, as well as former and still serving soldiers. If you lose a fellow member of the armed forces when you serve, it does affect all, be it a close friend of yours, or just someone that you know by sight at the same camp. I know from my own experiences that a kind of depression sinks over the whole place. So to lose three comrades to the cold-blooded hands of a fellow soldier, well, it's just unimaginable, isn't it? Walker, I hope that you suffer to your dying day. What do you guys think of the tale of Corporal Andrew Walker and his desperate, greedy and awful actions? Was he deluded in thinking that he could get away with his crime or just arrogant? And did he stash the money somewhere in Edinburgh or do the remnants of a sack of £19,000 lie somewhere in the Pentland Hills? Was there possibly an accomplice involved that has never faced justice or was the money found and just never reported? I'd love as ever to hear your thoughts concerning the case featured in this episode, which you can do in the thread on the show's Facebook discussion group page, or through any of the show's social media links. You can mail me whatever you wish. I shall always get back to everybody who gets in touch, and I welcome joining in with any correspondence. It's fantastic to be feeling better and back with you guys with a new episode, which I hope you found both interesting and informative, and hopefully the first one of a clear run of episodes now. In the meantime, Patreon supporters can check out bonus episode number 22, Retribution, which is out very shortly, or now, depending on when you're listening to this episode, of course. And of course, if you aren't and you'd like to become a supporter and hear it, and other episodes or the bonus episodes for yourselves, then please check out the link with the contact details in the episode show notes, or head over and seek out the show on the Patreon site and just go from there. I shall be back next week with another tale from The Enthusiast, so until we next speak then, I thank you warmly for joining me for the episode today. I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care folks and goodbye for now.